The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. My good people, welcome to the Typology Podcast, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner co-host of the show and I'm super thrilled about today's show and happy that you are joining us today. We had a really good time on this podcast. Our guest today is author of the New York Times bestsellers, Everything Happens for a Reason, No Cure for Being Human and Good Enough, as well as Blessed and The Preacher's Wife. She's also host of the popular podcast, Everything Happens. And of course, I'm talking about Duke University professor Kate Bowler. Super thrilled to have her here. And we had a really good conversation. I mean, she's smart as a whip. She has been through so much, suffered so much, and learned so much. So she's got some real pearls of wisdom to bring to us today and uh, just some really beautiful moments. So I'm glad I got to be in the room with her. And I'm glad now that you get to join in on this conversation as well. So. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And without any further ado, here is our guest, Kate Bowler, and your host, Ian Crum. Typology Tribe, today, oh, we have a great guest, Enneagram 2 with a three-wing, host of the podcast, Everything Happens, author of the new book, No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear, my new friend, Kate Bowler. Welcome to Typology. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm so glad to be here. Here's the question we have to start with every single guest. Where did you learn about the Enneagram? How did you feel about being an Enneagram 2? What have you learned? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was it was horrible. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. It was I from the middle of Canada. And so most of what moves its way through evangelicalism, and that was the super stream of Mennonite evangelicalism, eventually makes its way to Winnipeg, Manitoba. And my sister picked up an Enneagram book and said, oh, it's you. (laughs) Check out chapter whatever. And I read it and wept. It was horrifying. It was like uh, seeing a little golden retriever wearing a bonnet on a treadmill. And that was my experience of Enneagram (laughs) 2, Wing 3. And we did what you're not supposed to do, which was we spent most of our time accusing one another of which types we were and then uh, accusing my parents. And that's really mostly how therapy worked for my 20s and early 30s. Right, which is kind of the arc of therapy in life. It goes through about 20 years of dumping on your parents before you wake up and realize one day, Oh, guess what? I seem to appear in every scene in the ongoing drama of my life. Perhaps I have something to do with my problems. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It was a slow roll. But, uh, but eventually that montage went somewhere. I think, uh, yeah, this was something akin to ownership. Sure. All right. Enneagram 2, you're a giver. You're a helper, depending on which teacher you you happen to be reading. Your unconscious motivation, you know, it's so simple for twos. It's simple that you just simply that you want to be liked. And you don't just want to be liked. You want to be indispensable 
to other people. And uh, you want to, I mean, everybody wants to be liked, but you have a particularly acute need to be approved mm. of and to be liked. How are we feeling right now? It's horrible. I can tell, though, that I said even at a dinner last week, because my I want to be liked, the thing that will come out of my mouth, though, is I really want to be helpful. I just really want, I'll mm. be disappointed. I said that to the, I was sitting with a mega church preacher and I was like, hey, at the end of this dinner, I'd be really disappointed if I didn't feel like I was really helpful to you in some way. So tell me about your problems and I'd be more than happy <laughs> to talk them through with great granularity. And that was me at my most comfortable. You didn't actually say that. I did. Yeah. I'd be very disappointed by this dinner, dot, 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 if is a sentence that I uttered. Yeah. Were you anxious? No, I just, I do like the feeling though of getting in the weeds of other people's stuff because then I have this, and I have an underlying sense of like, ah, yes, I have done my work for the day. I have been very right. helpful. I'm a little chippier though than I imagine many people who want to be liked because I love fighting. And if I were given a theological fight club, and if I could bare knuckle box just as a lady, just rolling up my sleeves right now in my enormous sweater. I really would. <laughs> so all right, there's that version, which is a lot of fun. So some thankfulness twos are anxious or under stress. They go to the low side of the challenger eight. Yeah. And it can really pony up and bring it. And also, people don't also understand that twos, uh, you know, they have, you know, it's not just three sevens and eights who can be really aggressive. I've seen really assertive twos. Do you know your subtype of two? Yeah, I was a little confused by it because I I was trying to understand it in terms of the nature of the work I do, which is uh -huh. I think sometimes in church world, everything looks like you're a two. And so I, it was hard to sort of suss out the motivation. But I think I'm a social two, but yes. I because I have an overwhelming desire to host parties and make yeah. everybody feel comfortable, but not to run after the most impressive person at that party. So, yeah. so your social tendencies are not actually what makes you a social two. But I, I will say that a social two tends to be the most ambitious of the twos. Huh. And if you have a three wing, that's even going to, you know, nail that down even well, a little bit more. I found the description of the sexual subtype to be like, Muh. it seemed very sort of um, exciting succubus woman who really like singles out only like special people for attention. And there's mm -hmm. that that seemed that I was like, oh, I don't really know if that applies yeah, to actually, me. Actually, that's a feature of all three twos, but for different <laughs> reasons. And also, if you're not very self-aware, Kate, this is sort of a. That, that has to be remembered. If you're not a very healthy social too, what will begin to happen is you will look for influential people that you want to get in with because the social too, like I said, is pretty ambitious and likes to climb a ladder of success. Number two, social twos love to be upfront if they have a particular expertise and be loved for that. They're comfort upfront and they're really entertaining upfront. The one that I always felt a little conflicted about, though, is the because I'm an academic, I spent all my adult life and really all of my adolescent years with two academic parents. And when people describe the desire to be liked, to me, it's so close to this thing that I really, really want, which is I have this overwhelming feeling about ideas that I'm so desperate, like I'm willing to forego a lot of being liked or forego a lot of, I mean, it really helpful opportunities, <laughs> or if I think that the argument is a really good one. And I've, 
usually seen that in like collector five types or eights that want the, but the, the deep yeah. love of furthering an idea is so intensely close to what I think is valuable that I, I find myself not always relating to some of the, th- I like being ambitious, but I will be incredibly ambitious about an idea in a way that I won't be ambitious about myself. And in your milieu, a person who can get up front and argue an idea would be liked. You see, in other words, uh, if you were, for example, in the insurance industry, that might not win you popularity, right? But in your setting, that's something that people admire. And it probably would be an avenue toward social value, right? Which is what people in the social subtype want. They want to be valued by the group because they associate group value with survival. I can see that that would be an underlying motivation. I can also think of a lot of examples in which I'd pay a pretty high cost to not be valued. But I think it really, it's it's so strange because it's theology, because I work in ways in which I get to talk about myself and also just have to say something true about God, regardless of whether Mm -hmm. it makes me look good. Yeah. So it's a funny, like, uh, it rings both bells, like the one that feels like survival, but also... I have such a deep hatred of like the quarter turn away from it that I'm so uh, I'm like very concerned about the the word is just heresy. But like, I'm like very concerned about saying something that would make me likable, but isn't entirely true. Well, these things, you know, the Enneagram is an imperfect model, but very useful. And there are truths about fours that really took me years to recognize in my own life. I, yeah. When I first heard them, I was always like, nah, that's, nah. and then three years later, I went, oh, no, there it is. Because obviously, we are probably the greatest mystery we have to face every day next to God <laughs> and like why we're here. <laughs> totally. yeah. Right? And yeah. so sometimes we have these moments where the fog clears and we see ourselves in a way that we just completely surprises us. And I go, oh my gosh, that is so true of me as a four. And I just disowned it. And so maybe it was in my shadow. I just couldn't own the shadow part. And then for whatever reason, maybe I've done some work. I'm feeling secure. I'm able to kind of handle this thing when it comes out of the shadow. And I go, okay, there it is. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. Twos, you know, when they're in a good space, they're warm. They are supportive. They're self-sacrificing. They create spaces in which people feel so safe to tell their own stories. I was thinking to myself as we were talking before we hit record that your self-presentation is very too. You're very cheerful, very outgoing, funny. You know, you have an ability to make an instant connection with another human being. I felt like, oh my gosh, we've known each other for years. We're going to have so much fun. (laughs) And I am having so much fun, but I don't, you know, twos often exhibit that self-presentation more than other types do. Threes can, sevens can, but twos are so good. And people tend to think of threes as being the people who can like sort of shape shift to win other people over. But actually twos, threes, and fours are brilliant at it. And the way the two does it is they kind of read the other person mm-hmm. and they're like, I know what to say. I know how to self-present. It's all very unconscious and connect emotionally super, super fast. Yeah, totally. That sounds right. That's one of the things I love most too, is the being a careful reader means that I can skip most of the small talk that I truly hate. 
and then know something about someone else, which makes me feel very alive. Like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, everything's out. We can see all the emotions. Full rainbow. <laughs> I love it. I do love it. Well, here's a question I've never asked it to. What's your favorite emotion? Lately, it's anger <laughs> because it's just been a rough season. And uh, mm. anger was has been one of my most underexpressed, allowable feelings in my, especially in the Christian uh, mm-hmm. circles in which I traffic. So my friend got me one of those little wood grain nameplates that just says stay angry, which makes me laugh. Because <laughs> I was always like, I'm a dolphin. And they're like, no, you're a shark. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I just want to, I just want to be, uh, get all my chompers out right now. So I, I have like a lot of ongoing health issues that pop back up. And then I find myself dealing with the day as a set of really awful institutional and like painful obstacle courses. And so I'm more angry lately just because I, I'm in so much pain. All the feelings are closer. I'm just, I have less ability to mask what I think or make other people feel comfortable, which then in turn makes me feel self-conscious. So I was like, oh, maybe if we just bust out anger a little bit more, I'll get, I'll get a bigger spectrum of the feelings I need. I think it's working. (laughs) Mm. I think it's really good for twos to unearth anger yeah, Mm -hmm. um, as an indicator of authentic feeling. That sounds right to me. And as a way to, I'm taking this from Helen Palmer, as a way to unearth the conflicts that underlie other things that are happening in their life. I told, because I have this great, uh, I've had a lot of Enneagram twos in my life and I've had a lot of the energy where people will hand you a gift, but the price tag is attached. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) You're like, oh, that's so much it costs. Thanks for the indirect manipulation. I love it. So I try to be as direct as I can because I'm trying to talk my way out of any sort of indirect manipulation. (laughs) It's like, Mm -hmm. here's what I need, (laughs) even though here's what I need is uh, such an uncomfortable sentence for me. But then when I feel disappointed or gave more than the other did and have to recalibrate or if anger is fully off the table for me, then it just, just little imploding star <laughs> of, of, well, wait, where does all this energy go? I can't direct it towards somebody else. And now my own needs aren't being met. So I'm trying to introduce anger <laughs> as a bonus feature that lets me, mm-hmm. um, that lets me maybe not then expect anybody else to, uh, or to be just like mad that the other person didn't meet me where I hoped that they would. That's very common for twos. And I think twos oftentimes get angry out of a core sense of resentment that other people don't recognize their needs. Yeah, that's right. Their unexpressed needs. Unexpressed needs, totally. Read my mind needs. Yeah. Yes. I like, I'm very, resentment, the second I start being county in a relationship, I'm like, that is a bad path, little friend. That is a bad path. That means I've overgiven, didn't notice, expected someone to fix me. And now I hate them. I mean, I don't yes. really because I act, I forgive too quickly. But uh, yes. resentment is usually a sign that I've made. I've there's a wrong calculation, and I need to yes. like take a second. That's so I'm, interesting that you said that because I think there are other numbers who do this, and part of it's historical mm. stuff for these people. But two fours and nines, just off the top of my head, mm. forgive too quickly. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they don't really wait. 
yeah. to think through. So it's almost like, and for different reasons, like the nine yeah. wants to forgive quickly to maintain connection. And also because they don't yeah. like the uncomfortable feelings that come up that disturb the inner peace. It's like, let's just forgive them. Totally. Uh, and twos will do mm-hmm. it for another set of reasons because twos mm-hmm. don't want to lose the relationship. Yeah. Just, Ian, you know, say more about that. Like, cause I, cause then I'd have to, then I'd have to make them, I mean, I, I forgive so quickly, Ian. Like I, most of the function of my friendships sometimes when I'm in a bad stretch is like, hey, remember when that person uh, <laughs> close quarter punched you in the esophagus? And I'm like, right, 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 right. That did happen last week. But it, yes. it tends to go into a deeply, uh, it just goes right into a tar pit and I'll never find it again. Yeah. Can I say I, something there, Ian? Yes. I had a therapist once that, confronted me about that as a four mm. you know anthony you you move past your anger too quickly mm. and your anger is there to help you you know to give you the passion to move into what you need to move into you know but if you just go oh no no everything's okay so i just wonder like if you had to sit in your anger for a minute yeah right now like what is it that you're most angry about yeah because well, some of it is I'm so angry at stuff that no one lets you be angry. I mean, you can't be angry at because it's, you know, I can't be angry at cancer because it doesn't apologize. I mean, I am angry, but it doesn't go anywhere that I would mm-hmm. love. I'm so I'm in so much chronic pain lately and I don't want to hate my own body. So it's mm-hmm. hard to know where to put anger when I'm so sad about that. But then it's easier yeah. to be sad than angry. But man, uh, especially with pain, everything's on the surface. And it's so embarrassing because everyone can see exactly what you're feeling and you don't want them to. I really wish I could just, I'm, I am so uh, livid that it's been this many years mm-hmm. of being in this much pain all the time. That's the other thing is that usually our emotions are twinned. So I, yeah. I mean, like I feel like right now I'm I just feel like I connected with you in a way that I haven't up to this point because it feels like that when you brought that sadness to the surface, it felt so true to me. Mm. Could you talk about your sadness right now? Well, sad is, well, I don't have a very fixable life. And so mm. I have to, I have to kind of like grieve in motion, basically. Let's see, I'm 42. I started being in like one terrible health problem after another, starting when I was 28. And like, it's so I lost use of my arms for two years, like arm slings, couldn't move them, couldn't wash my hair, couldn't drive, couldn't prepare dinner kind of thing. And then it was infertility and miscarriages. Mm. And then I had the worst pregnancy and then the best baby. And then right after I got stage four cancer, and then I had about eight abdominal surgeries and then mm. now I have chronic pain related to my stupid abdominal surgeries and my ninth belly button that I have. So like, I know why I'm sad and I'm sad a lot. And then there's so much joy, which is like helps me because I don't believe in um like a as a life arc. I feel the tragic comedy of everything. So mm-hmm. I find things deeply funny. I, my mm-hmm. friends are their their problems bring me a tremendous amount of joy. I find that is what creates the big but it's the big roller coaster because mm. sad is just like around the corner all mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. Mm. my daughter has struggled with chronic pain for five years mm. i'm sorry and so yeah i really uh, i feel sad with you and for you and for myself and for my daughter yeah so thank you for sharing that oh. 
appreciate that. Thanks, friend. Before we talk about your new book, it's a good moment to talk about a previous book. It was a New York Times bestseller. It was Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And I, I suspect that it's a good segue into talking about that book, given our conversation about you know uh, sadness and struggle and pain. I suspect that book largely came out of these you know physical ailments and the realization like, you know what, sometimes shit happens that just shouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate or? Yeah, I wrote it in the, I got my stage four cancer diagnosis and when I was 35 and we didn't think it was the fall and we didn't think I would live through June. So I wrote that book in waiting rooms and that was like, that was my first real go around with anger. I was so angry and I didn't have anywhere to say it or put it because I wanted so much to concurrently live. And also as protecting my family who was devastated and want, and a mom of a two-year-old. And they're just, you know, there's only so many hours in a day when you're getting as much medical treatment as I was. So I wrote this book to pour all of it, which was the, wasn't I special? Didn't I really try? Couldn't I have worked my way out of this? Kind of, I mean, it's the most basic question for anyone who's like, God, couldn't you be a little more good somehow? Like, why Why do I have to wait this long for something to be, for my life to uh, feel full? So, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of the deep tragicomedy <laughs> and being able to write about it, which has been my primary vehicle of being like searingly honest. Why was it hard to be seriously, searingly honest before? Uh, have you have you ever t- told a problem to a Christian audience and really enjoyed their the grab bag of Christian answers they'll give you? I mean, Christians are mired in certainties, and uh, I I have a special place in my heart for people who want to be honest in faith communities because other people's certainties crowd out most of the hardest questions. In my experience, mm-hmm. it's interesting you say that. Two things: one is, you know, I was raised a Roman Catholic. In high school, through young life, I became an evangelical. And God bless him. 1970s, it was an awesome little movement. Had no political affiliations. It was just kind of sweet people singing, you know, I mean, literally singing the sounds of silence and crying together about our adolescent lives and Jesus. It was lovely. And then I eventually, you know, went through the world of evangelicalism, partly as a pastor. And then over time, I won't go into my theological evolution, but ended up as an Episcopal priest, which was quite a journey. And in the Episcopal church that I'm in now, it has its own form of dishonesty, but I think there is there is its own honesty. It's, it feels a little bit more honest to me than my previous experience. They seem less anxious than evangelicals. And mm. evangelicals, I think, have the kind of anxiety born of a lust for certitude, in part. Yeah. And kind of sometimes a misguided... Yeah loyalty to institutions that really no longer serve them other than it mollifying their anxiety. Yeah. And I'll just finish by saying this. I'm working on a project right now in which I'm being challenged by myself and my publisher to be perhaps more honest than I anticipated about my own life. And uh, I mean, this is really for my editor, not my publisher. And this person is right but part of it is born of my fear that in being so transparent about a particular issue in my life, 
will rain down the heavens. And mm. a part of me is like, yeah, I'm also 62, so who should care? You yeah, know, yeah. like, I That's, should probably give that up. It's, uh, I wrote things I would never have said. And it is, I mean, it can be an incredible tool, almost always, because by the time you're finished writing, you've really, there's like a little nugget in there that you, you know, like the, what you described as we are a mystery to ourselves. We kind of circle mm -hmm. around it until we finally touch that one little pinprick at the core. But I, yeah. you know, every religious community has different advantages and disadvantages about how or whether or not they shield the suffering. But I, I mostly suffered in a mainline context because I, I work at a I work at a Methodist seminary. I go and all my friends are pastors. My colleagues are pastors and priests. And the great failure of liturgical traditions around suffering is that we'll all die just so politely. Just the service is over in six minutes. So we couldn't possibly linger over praying for the I mean, we are so scripted in our response and so reluctant to pray for miracles for other people who are desperate that I, I find sometimes the mainline can socialize people out of the desperation that we all experience. And that to me is honest. If you're fucking desperate, you'll say and ask for help and support that you would never yes. ask for if you yeah. were on script. Mm -hmm. And yes. I, I really couldn't afford to keep my very likable. I mean, I was going bankrupt because of medical bills. I mean, there's not a lot of pride that is afforded to somebody who is sick and dying and needs a community or else. Yeah. So I, I hate to give this question because it's such a big topic and I want to get to your new book, but this is going to, this stuff is so important for our listeners to have access to these kinds of truths and conversations, you know, so to skip over it, I think, would be a disservice, uh, not only to them, but to me, because I, I, I want to know these things. If you could give, oh, I hate to say this, a pithy, because for the sake of time, praises or summary, elevator description of what you learned in that season of life, out of which everything happens for a reason was written, about suffering, about all, you know, whatever, what would it be? What would you want people around? I had spent most of my academic life studying these cultural scripts we have about everything happening for a reason or good vibes only or boxing us into a really tidy story about how we earn our lives and we get what we deserve. And so when everything came apart, that was what I always wanted for myself is I wanted everyone to have much more permission to be honest about the lives that can't be fixed a deeper sense that somehow God's presence is real and very likely not earned <laughs> by any of our incredible behavior. <laughs> and that in our precarity that we're going to need community more than any of our culture's individualistic models want us to have. So, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the big themes that I always think about are just hope, courage, and honesty, because that's what I need to live and it's certainly what I need for inter like interdependence, <laughs> but, but I'm not built for any of it. Like, as you can tell, I'm built for optimistic individualism. I'm built to tell you everything's fine. And I'd definitely rather focus on your problems. Thanks. This conversation is making me uncomfortable. Let's find someone. <laughs> Let's find someone else to talk about. I would far rather hide things until it's too late. So now that I catch, that's kind of where I try to dig in. Well, 
Thank you for your transparency and your vulnerability. I think it will be very, very helpful to many of the folks that tune into us on a regular basis. Okay, let's talk about no cure for being human and other truths I need to hear. What the heck is it about? And why, why should I go out and buy it immediately? Because the dang publisher did not send it to me in advance. Continue. <laughs> Well, no cure for being human was just what I started saying when I had chronic cancer. And I was like, oh, I guess like I have had an incurable life. And so, you know, I started studying the kind of secular versions of the prosperity gospel that like God wants to give you health and wealth and happiness. And that I realized it was not just in your local megachurch, but it was Goop and Oprah and everybody's local hot yoga studio in which someone really, really, really wants to explain manifesting to them. So I was looking at cultural scripts that try to prevent us from saying that, like, how do we live like this with a life that can't be solved? So yeah, cultural scripts are like very close to my heart. I've read thousands of self-help books. I am the person who will tell you all about the heresies we find in cheap paperbacks. And I, I, want, I want us to have more. Yes. So tell me more about how this book can come up alongside of somebody in the church space and help them relate to the truth of their lives in all of its rawness in a way that's consoling and generative. I guess the one of the challenges we have, just all of us, is the I think we really get stuck in our New Year's kind of religions, and we don't think of them as religions, but it always goes you know, Christmas, presents, et cetera, family, all of a sudden, new year, new you. And in new year, new you, we imagine this perfectible, generative, like endlessly generating nothing, you know, progress, progress, progress story. I think one of the things that's most tiring about that is every year we do have the sense that we've been stuck in this perfectibility paradigm from which we can never escape. We're just 11 months away from disappointing our next year's New Year's resolutions. So I think one of the most hopeful and loving things we can say to ourselves is that we are not project. We are just, we are people to be loved. We are not problems to be solved. And that most of the good and beautiful things really are mostly unfinishable. So I, I studied everybody's different, I studied all these different cultural scripts like bucket lists, but like, it is a lovely thing to say that the more we live, the hungrier we are for more. The more, I mean, there's no, there's only love. There's love, love, and then love, and then love. So, and then the more we love someone, congratulations, the more painful it is <laughs> to ever lose them and to love them more. So there's going to be no cure for any of this. It's just the hunger. The hunger means we're alive. Yes. And I think that it's like what Rahner said, and Rahner is like my favorite theologian. Like when I studied Rahner in graduate school, I went to Fordham for doctoral work. And I, I, when I read Rahner, I actually cried in the first class. You know, I was like, it was like a three-hour seminar with one of his PhD students, whose Rahner was his, had been his uh, supervisor. And he has that great line that in this life, there is, we are all unfinished symphonies. Mm, yes, you know, that's, that's so how, beautiful. That's how we end. And for those people who know what a four chord is, like if you're in the key of G, then C is the four chord. And that's, that's the chord that makes you feel like you're hanging and waiting for it to go to G to end the song <laughs> on the root chord. But there are you're songs, like, da, lots da, of da, songs. Da, da, that one. Yeah. And you just end on the four chord and yeah. it leaves everybody hanging. And I think that's how we leave life is on the four chord. Like, I like that so much, you know, Ian. There was this, um, 
I had this really vivid experience of that feeling when I was, uh, so my parents got this gig where they're, so they're both professors and they work in the, I'm so sorry, but the worst university in Canada and nothing is fancy about academia. And that's what I love about it. There will be no gargoyles. There will be no, there'll just be a campus that always smells like manure because they're always testing manures every September. That's how I grew up. And I was like, this is, this is my dream. They got a gig though, working on a boat that went around the world to teach students who mostly were briefed on the limits of alcohol consumption at a report fair. And I flew out to meet them on their Portugal stop. And we took a little bus into this gorgeous cathedral. And my dad, who knows everything about everything, and I were wandering around and I was bugging him about how much he truly, truly, truly hates the late Gothic period. Because as you know, it is the most doodly daddest of any architectural style. It's like you took an archway, congratulations, now add 200 gargoyles to it. But then in Portugal, they had this even worse iteration where it just made them all pineapples. So I'm in this cathedral and there's just thousands and thousands of stone pineapples, like ruining this beautiful church. And we are being jerks about it. And I saw this old man just like bustling around, his cute little walking stick and his socks pulled up. And he was like, it's just, it, this is, it's just beautiful. And he comes over and is like, what do you love about this cathedral? And I was like, ah, I'm just about to. And he was like, and I realized that a shadow was passing by my feet. And I looked up and realized that, the, that there was like completely open air in front of me because they had doodly dadded the crap out of this building for like centuries, but never actually finished it. So it didn't have a roof. And um, just as I was just about to be a colossal smartass, he says, this is the life of faith, isn't it? We're always done. I mean, we're, we're, even, even when it's done, it's never over. Like always working, always bedazzling. And I thought, what a perfect description of the endless ornamentation we do over, over before it's ever finished. And that's what they call it. They call it the unfinished cathedral. Mm, I sure love that. And you, you, I, I love that you've also sort of brought something else to mind. Here it goes, Anthony. Same old crap for me. But it's so, I mean, such a big metaphor for me. All my life, substance use disorder from the time I was 27, right? Now, in recovery, but with relapses. And part of it is a way of, as all addictions are, whether it's process addictions, and I think everybody's an addict. So I don't think there's a special class of addicts. Mm -hmm. I think there are just some who have more public lethal, possibly, mm -hmm. um, disorder, right? But everybody, I don't care who you are. And if anybody d doesn't believe me, please go get Gerald May's book, Char Addiction and Grace, and it'll be a good lesson for you. I feel like in my own life that substances, mood alteration was about trying to avoid having an honest confrontation with the feeling of not at home, the unfinishedness of human life. Mm. And I don't want to paint it as being poetic too much because it's by the time you get to the end of your run, it is far from poetry. It is not romantic that like we meet people in Nashville all the time, like young kids, you know, it's like, I got to become like Merle Haggard to become an alcoholic, be a legitimate like musician. And I'm always like, okay, try that out and see how it ends. It's not as fun as you think. And anyway, it, it seems to me that's part of our culture of avoiding what's really happening in mm. the human life. 
And we know now, you know, we have this terrible opioid crisis, fentanyl crisis. We have this, you know, suicide rate among white, wealthy guys. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. pain is everywhere and honesty and strategies for avoidance are just rife. And I guess what you're saying about our Christian tradition is it does provide us with an alternative way of seeing and being in the world. So I find that really useful in this conversation, Hmm. you know. Thanks for sharing about the, um, it's so powerful to hear you say that it's, uh, that this, like this ache inside of us is creates this desire, this like twin desire, both it sounds like for numbing and also for like a deep desire for connection. (laughs) Well, exactly. I think, uh, and even, you know, Carl Jung said this about addicts. He said, all addicts are frustrated mystics. I like that. Uh, in, yeah, yeah, in search of divine connection for some kind of, and of course, you know, chemicals are a highly e- time-efficient way of trying to come up with a hmm. false, albeit false or counterfeit experience of the transcendent. Uh, mm-hmm. I definitely experienced that in my own life. I'm not sure others would mm-hmm. say they connected with that idea, but maybe as an Enneagram 4, I find that as a poetic explanation for I my like own. I like that. So much. I do, because I I find that all versions in which people then say, well, then I'll never be hungry. Like, I'll never be hungry in that way. I just, I never believe them. So I like it when you say it. Well, I actually, I'm working on this new book, and uh, I actually refer to addictions as the ache, uh, Mm. capital A. So it it is the ache. Yeah. If I were like in a... Enneagram three wing version, I was like, oh, I'll solve this with a set of time management strategies. So I unironically buy any airport kiosk book that is called like the happy inbox. And I'm like, (laughs) and then it took me a bit. And that's why I was working on no cure for being human is I realized I was trying to, I thought I was trying to solve the problem of time because I've always had limited time with a cancer diagnosis. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. You're just trying to solve finitude like the never done feeling, which to me is like, Mm. well, then I'll never have enough. There's never going to be enough experiences. There's never going to be enough. Even, But I mean, the (laughs) I find it so cruel that it's true of all the terrible stuff and it's true of all the best stuff. Mm. Like there's never going to be enough loving your kid. There's never going to be enough, you know, desire to be touched and known and seen and loved and like, and I was like, so even, and then all the good stuff, it just makes more love. So anyway, it seems like a real design, a design flaw, real design flaw. If I'm just going to submit my feedback to our maker, you know? Well, it's that the struggle of being infinite, being finite creatures with infinite desires. Right. <laughs> and it's so hard, you know? It's horrible. And, uh, it's and, really horrible. Yeah. 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 The best feelings, because, you know, they have those studies of like, why do we want to bite our kids? You know, where we're just like, oh, I could eat you up. I love. It's, it's like where the wild things are feeling. I'll eat you up. I'll love you so. Mm. I'm like, well, yes, infinite desires, finite creatures. Yeah, for sure. All right, we got to close up, but I want to talk about the lives we actually have, which is another new book. Tell us about it. Oh, well, I had studied uh, hashtag blessed for so long. I mean, my my first book was called Blessed. It was a history of people's desire to be healthy and wealthy and happy and believe God always puts them in the right place at the right time. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to be that person. (laughs) 
<laughs> so does that mean I never get to say spiritually true things uh, mm. about without accidentally having to always just say lucky? I hate the word lucky. So I started writing blessings for other people in the midst of their difficult times. And then I started researching the deeper meaning of blessing as a kind of spiritual emplacement. Like, oh, wait, this goes here. That goes there. God can help us. I always think of it sort of like spiritual interior design. Like, let's just rearrange things so we can both see things more clearly and also look for blessing where we wouldn't have found it. Because Jesus says, like, blessed are those who mourn. And that is not, uh, it's not a place anyone in our culture wants to look for God's miraculous appearance. But I have really found that blessing is a richer language for me to use when I can't be hashtag blessed. So I have a question. Do you have a favorite blessing that would be good for signing off this show? Ooh, that's a fun challenge. Um, well... I wish I had one for like unfettered rage because that would have been tied into our <laughs> tied into our um, I really like ones <laughs> where it just sounds like I'm being unbelievably pissy, but maybe one for ordinary days. Now, I, I don't want to just slowly waste your time. Well, don't be a perfectionist. Just grab and go. I love for feeling it all. Okay. Oh my gosh. That's exactly what I, Anthony, thank you. Here we go. Here it is. All right. Blessed are you who feel things big. You who might feel embarrassment because of how overwhelming things can be. Blessed are you who need reminders that those emotions are not good or bad. They're just information. You feel angry because this is unjust. You feel sad because this is awful. You feel tired because this is exhausting. Your emotions are not wrong or bad or lying to you or telling the full truth. They're giving you a bit of data you shouldn't ignore. We lose and love and fall and get back up and fail and try again. Your humanity is not an affront. We are reminding ourselves that this is who we are, how we're made to feel the pain, the grief, the stress, the risk, the fear, the heartbreak. So, you beautiful creature... Here is your permission slip to feel it all, to feel the joy and excitement and delight and the sorrow and fear and despair, all the yellows and pinks and violets and grays, because you are the whole damn sky. Thanks, loveys. Hey, Fuller, thank you for being on Typology, for finishing us with that beautiful blessing, but mm-hmm. which now uh, will replace my weekly blessing uh, because it should. And uh, I want to encourage everybody to please go out and get Kate's new book, No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear, as well as the book, The Lives We Actually Have. And boy, other books, everything happens uh, for a reason. And, uh, and uh, anyway, you can go on Amazon, look up Kate Bowler, B-O-W-L-E-R. What's your what's your website, Kate? Yeah, katebowler.com. Say more. All right. Yeah. All right. We got to sign off because I want I want the linger of the blessing to hang with us. So, peace and grace. Thanks for being with us, Kate. Thanks, friends. Mm-hmm.